surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. And the king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked David. And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Thanks, Phil. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Let me add to uh, Ben's welcome. Uh, and if, I, if you're new or visiting, uh, either here or online, it's, uh, it's good to, to have you join us today. Uh, my name's Jono, and uh, I lead the ministry here at Grace Anglican Churches. And it's my uh, privilege to open this part of God's Word uh, with us this morning. Let's pray and ask that God would help us as we turn our minds to His Word. Our Father, we do thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You that You speak to us, that You reveal Yourself to us. Father, we ask that You give us insight and understanding, and that we would take to heart what You have to teach us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A, uh, a pessimist sees a dark tunnel. An optimist sees light at the end of the tunnel. A realist sees a freight train. And the train driver sees three crazy guys standing on the tracks. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Do you see the glass as half full or, or half empty? Does every cloud have a silver lining or every silver lining have a cloud? Which one of these guys uh, would you describe yourself as? Poor fella, he's half dead. I'm an optimist, I say he's half alive. Or this one, ah, I'm half eaten. Pessimist. I'd read it, but it probably wouldn't do me any good. The uh, Break the cycle of negative thinking. Good, isn't it? Now, have a think. Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Maybe just have a, have a chat to the person next to you. Would you say optimist, pessimist? Take a minute, have a chat. All right, that's long enough. Let's have a show of hands. Who, who, who are the optimists? Optimists? Yeah, pessimists? Who, who's a realist? No, you, you're kidding yourself. You're just a pessimist who's kind of... <laughs> Who doesn't like to own the label? Uh, maybe not. Maybe that's just an optimist speaking. See? What about Christians in general? Do you think Christians in general are optimists or pessimists? Are we, are we quick to point out all the problems? Or maybe are we quick to say, no, no, it's all good. Well, we're going to return to that uh, in a little while as today's passage, I think, sheds some light on this question for us. Today, we're continuing our series through 1 Samuel. We come to this great story of David and Goliath, and it really is a great story. It's uh, recorded for us here in in 1 Samuel 17. It's masterfully told by a great storyteller. And it's, uh, of course, a famous story. I think it'll be up there in the the top few stories that people in general would know of, uh, of from the Bible 
Uh, many of us would have heard of it at Sunday school at Kids Church, uh, in school scripture, how little David triumphs over the big Goliath with his little stones and sling. And it is a great story. And we love it. We love a story where the, where the little guy wins. I think it's also famously misunderstood and misapplied. It's the sort of story that people can take and, and moralize to say, you know, whatever it is that they want to say. Uh, so, well, God helped little David to defeat big Goliath. So God can help you to defeat the Goliaths in your life too. That is an example of how this story is misapplied. Or maybe it's a Goliath represents the sorts of sins that we have to battle against. And so we need to be like David. We need to take up our, our sling of faith and our five stones of obedience and prayer and Bible reading and evangelism and church or whatever it is that we pluck out of the thin air. And we need to take those stones and we can win the battle against the, the sins in our lives. And, and we could enact the story and it'd be quite a memorable teaching, uh, teaching time. That sort of approach to this passage is sadly common, um, but I've got, to, I've got to break it to you. That's not what God teaches us in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, this, this chapter does have important things to teach us and things that are, are, are relevant and, uh, and vitally so uh, to us and to our lives. Uh, but we need to do a little bit more than just kind of springboard from this great story and, and moralise it to say whatever we want to say. So what is this about? Well, have a look with me. Um, I hope you've got your Bibles open. If you've closed your Bibles, I encourage you to get it out again because I'm not putting verses on the screen this morning. Um, there's just too many of them. So it'd be really helpful to have your Bible open so that you can uh, follow along while we work through this. Now, the battle scene is set in verse 1. The, the Philistines, are, they're, they're there. They've gathered their forces for war against the Israelites. And this is a familiar scene. The Philistines have been Israel's long-term uh, enemy. Back in chapter 14, verse 52, 1452, it summarises Saul's reign with these words, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. This was not unusual. We should also remember that getting rid of the Philistines was, well, that was what Saul was supposed to do. That was the job that God had appointed for him. Way back in, in chapter 9, verse 16, uh, the Lord said to Samuel about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. So here we have the Philistines versus the Israelites. The Philistines assembled on one hill, the Israelites assembled on the other with the valley of Elah between them. The scene is set, then we meet Goliath, verse 4. There's a champion, literally a man of the between, one who, who went out in front, in between the two armies who had lined up there, a champion named Goliath. And notice how he's, um, he's described halfway through verse 4. It says uh, his height, uh, sorry, where is it? His, his height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze graves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear was shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Goliath was massive. Uh, now we don't tend to deal in cubits and spans and whatnot, but on the, the, the regular uh, measure of those things, 
he is nine foot nine tall. This, this, this guy was big. Um, here's a man on the screen uh, who is just over eight feet tall. That's a big, a big guy. I dare say this Philistine was, uh, was more solidly built than, than him, perhaps, perhaps like the, more like this basketballer. Goliath, the point is, Goliath was big. And uh, it describes his armour there in detail. He had a lot of metal protecting him, a coat of scale armour that weighed 57 kilograms, a spear with a, a seven kilogram point on it. This warrior was impressive. His appearance was intimidating. As was his challenge there in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? It's like he's saying, why bother lining up for battle? You are pathetic. Literally, he says, am I not the Philistine? Do I not represent and embody Philistines? And are you not Saul's slaves? Where is Saul, by the way? His challenge to them uh, is simple. Is, is along the lines of saying, look, let's just simplify things here. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Choose a man. Somewhat ironic that uh, Goliath would say that, choose a man. I mean, who's the man whom Israel had already chosen? Saul. Saul's described in 8 verse 18 as the king you have chosen. Or in 12 verse 13, now here is the king you have chosen. So Saul is really the closest thing that, they, that Israel has to a champion. He's the one who's a, a head taller than everyone else. But what's Saul's response? Verse 11, on hearing the Philistine, uh, Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Uh, they were shattered. They were scared witless. And Saul is, is no exception to this. So he's just lumped in with all the others who are dismayed and terrified. And you know what? You would have been too if you were there, as would I. Now, at, at this point, I want to just pause and ask, what's the significance of this, this Philistine champion? Why has the writer described him in, in such detail? What, what effect is that meant to have on us as readers. Goliath and, and the Philistines more generally, they, they represent what is a significant theme throughout the Bible. They represent the enemies of God, the enemies of his people, the enemies that, that rise up and threaten God's people. And that's a theme throughout the Bible that you can trace through. And when we get to the New Testament, we see how that relates to us. We see how the great enemies of God and the great enemies of his people are sin, are death, are the devil. They are the enemies that are even more terrifying and powerful than Goliath. We'll come back to this. But the significance of Goliath here is that the people of God are confronted with a terrible, terrible enemy. Well, the scene is set. What will God do about the threat of his enemies? Verse 12, we're introduced to David. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, 
who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, We've already been introduced to David back in chapter 16 with his secret anointing as the future king. But, But here David makes, if you like, his public introduction. Um, now, by the way, if you've been reading through, you might have sort of noticed that, hang on, the, isn't David kind of introduced to Saul in the end of chapter 16? I think it's most likely that that, the, uh, that, those, uh, that that has occurred after the events of chapter 17, but it's been rearranged to make the point, perhaps the contrast between Saul, the old king, and David, the new king. But here we read of, of David's uh, public introduction. He's the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse from Bethlehem in Judah, which may remind us as we're reading through 1 Samuel of another son of an Ephrathite uh, who, uh, who became the one to deliver Israel from the Philistines, namely Samuel. There's this parallel going on with Samuel and our expectations are raised. But here he's introduced as the youngest of eight brothers. He's the boy who minds the sheep. Meanwhile, the Philistine threat continues Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. I've got to say, that, that's a pretty long, enduring standoff. For 40 days the Philistine mocked the Israelites, terrified them day after day. But then we cut from that, from the battle scene, we cut to Jesse's home, where Jesse sends David on an, on an errand. He says, take this food to your brother's who are there fighting against the Philistines, or at least he thinks they are. Truth be told, they're just standing there terrified and dismayed. Take this food to your brothers, find out how they're going uh, there with Saul. So David sets off early in the morning. He leaves the the flock with the shepherd. We're given a lot of detail here, which kind of slows down the story. We're we're seeing things from David's perspective. Uh, David arrives just as the army is, is heading out to their battle positions, We read David leaves his things with the keeper of the the supplies. So I think a a little detail paralleling with Saul. Remember Saul was the one who who hid amongst the supplies. David leaves his things with the supplies and goes to the battle line. He's talking with his brothers and with the, uh, the men at the line and Goliath steps out in front and shouts his usual defiance, his usual mockery, same thing that's happened morning and night for the past 40 days. Only this time, something different happened. And we read three important little words at the end of verse 23. This is going to make today a very different day. We read, David heard it. Or literally in Hebrew, David heard. Two words. This day, things would be different. Though not straight away, verse 24 says... Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear, just as they had done every other day. And so the question that is, is, being, uh, is, is being asked here is, well, what's Saul going to do? What's he going to do about this situation? Saul's the one who's supposed to deal with the Philistines. What does he do? What's his plan? What's his tactics, his strategy? Well, we, we kind of hear of his plan, but we don't hear it firsthand. We just hear rumours of his plan. Uh, The Israelites have been saying amongst themselves, verse 25, halfway through, he says, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. That's the rumoured plan of great King Saul. He's offering a reward. 
Well, then David speaks. And these are David's first recorded words in the Bible. David asks two questions. Firstly, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? It's a real question which gets uh, an answer. He'll be given wealth and uh, his daughter and freedom and whatnot. And his second question is a rhetorical challenge, really. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It seems that unlike anyone else in Israel, David sees this Philistine for what he is and for what he's doing. He is a pagan who worships false gods and who's defying the true and living God, the God of Israel. Now, interestingly, this is the first mention of God in this chapter, and it comes on the lips of David. David is seeing this Philistine as God sees. And he's incensed that this uncircumcised Philistine would mock the Lord God. That he'd mock the armies of the living God and he says as much. Well then Eliab, David's oldest brother, hears him speaking with the men and and he rips into David. He says, verse 28, halfway through, Why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Is this some kind of sibling jealousy going on? Maybe an anointing FOMO? Eliab had seen David get uh, secretly anointed in Bethlehem. Whatever the case, Eliab's accusation, it's surprisingly similar to Goliath's. It's a similar question. Why have you come down here? And Eliab mocks David, he belittles him, he talks about those few sheep, that, that bit of a flock. He's got a presumed self-importance, I'm the one who knows what's going on, how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. Eliab is judging David's heart, which is ironic really because David was the one who had been chosen by God's heart. So Eliab is, is seeing with the eyes, as I talked about last week, rather than seeing what God is doing. But what we have here in this little interchange between Eliab and David is is God's people mocking God's chosen king. It reminds us of centuries later when Jesus came, God's great chosen king who came amongst his own people in his own hometown who responded on the screen. Sorry, gone too far. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother's name, Mary, and aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. People mocked and rejected Jesus, God's chosen king. The same is true today. Many people today don't see Jesus for who he really is. They look at him, they mock him, as Eliab mocked David. Think about it, through the eyes of our world, it, it just seems so unlikely. I mean, who would think that, that Jesus, this carpenter come, preacher, teacher, healer, that, that he, who ended up being executed for blasphemy, who would think that he is the king who saves people and who will rule the world? It shows us once again that God works in unexpected ways uh, and that's a theme that we see throughout the Bible. 
So Eliab mocks David. Uh, David's not put off. He continues speaking to the men. And eventually what David is saying, it reaches King Saul and Saul calls for David. Great, tall, impressive King Saul and little shepherd boy David. And this is their, their first meeting, but it's David who takes charge of the meeting, who says two things, verse 32. In short, he says, fear not and I will fight. Do not fear or let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Are you kidding, David? I mean, have you got eyes? Have you seen this guy? He's a monster. He's terrifying. Saul might be thinking, well, I could, I could respond in all sorts of ways, like run for your life or find somewhere to hide or try to think of a plan. But no, David says, do not fear. Do not lose heart. It's insane. It, it almost it seems to be that the craziest thing anyone could have said to Saul at that moment. But this is just like the gospel that we know. I mean, think about our great enemies. Think about death, your death. Think about sin, your sin. Think about the, the devil and his claim on you left to yourself because of your sin. We face a terrible enemy. And yet the gospel of Jesus says to us, do not be afraid. It's the craziest thing anyone could say to sinners like you and me. And it's the craziest thing David could say to Saul, except perhaps for the second thing that David says, which is, I will fight. I will fight him for you. And now that he is insane, Saul was Israel's biggest and best, and it was absurd for him to take on Goliath, which is why he didn't, but let alone for this little shepherd boy to take him on. And so for David to say, hey, King Saul, don't be afraid, I'm going to take on Goliath, it's just craziness. But God's way can often seem crazy to us, we're reminded again of, of Jesus and the night that he was born outside Bethlehem where the angels said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. Do not fear, you will be saved by one who is wrapped in cloths and lying in a food trough. God's way often seems crazy. People can find it hard to take this gospel seriously, just like Saul found it hard to take David seriously and Saul objected he said you're only a boy verse 33 you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him you're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth you can't do it says Saul David then points out that he's faced great dangers before he's fought off lions and bears to defend his sheep which is no mean feat if you think about it he's taken on bears and lions yet that's not where his confidence lies in verse 37, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David's confidence is in the Lord to deliver him. He trusts the Lord. Saul replies, Well, the Lord be with you. There are words that are more significant than Saul knows because the Lord is with David. The Spirit of the Lord is came upon David in power, we read in chapter 16. The Lord will be with David, the one who has been chosen to be king, just as the Lord is no longer with Saul, who has been rejected as king. The Lord be with you, David. Then we read of Saul dressing David in his, in his own tunic and armour. Again, this is, uh, drips with irony here that, uh, that King Saul 
without knowing is giving his kingly dress to the one who will succeed him. Uh, But the armour is no good. David can't use it. Saul's way doesn't fit David's. He'll be a different king to Saul. He takes his staff, his five stones, and he approaches the Philistine champion. Uh, The Philistine comes closer to David, presumably to, uh, to see what this small thing is that's approaching him. And when he sees David, verse 42, he looked David over, saw that he was a little, little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He was enraged. I mean, how dare Israel insult him by sending him a mere boy to fight with? 43, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. But David speaks. Uh, If you like, he proclaims his gospel to Goliath. He firstly points out the different power that they have. Verse 45, he says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I come in the name of the Lord God Almighty, Israel, God's personal name, Yahweh. David comes in the name of the Lord. This is something new. David's not just a man of faith in God. David comes in the name of God. He is Yahweh's chosen king, come to deliver his people. He tells Goliath that. He tells him that that because he has mocked the Lord God, he will be destroyed. David will destroy God's enemies. And the world will know who God is. Well, then it's time for battle. After 47 verses, we finally reach the battle. And it's surprisingly short. Verse 48, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. David triumphed over him, it says, without a sword in his hand. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him, stood over this nine foot nine giant. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. The defeat is absolute and it's complete. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they they turned and they ran. The the, the Israelites surged forward and defeated them. And the chapter finishes with Saul asking David in verse 58, whose son are you, young man? David says, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Which is a reminder to us as readers of exactly who this young man is. He is the particular son, the youngest son of Jesse, whom God has chosen to be his king. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, you'd be pleased to know I'm not going to, uh, to label all the different Goliaths in your life that you need to go and conquer. What we need to do, firstly, is to see our enemy. See, what are the things that's, that threaten us, that we might class as our enemies? I, I think there's all sorts of things. We might say insecurity, fear, health concerns, financial concerns, relationship issues, 
worry. Worry that things won't work out, that things might go wrong. There's all sorts of things. And this world, for, for all, the, all the good in it, this world is a broken place. And we know that, we experience that, we face real threats. But the Bible tells us that underlying all these threats are greater enemies, even more terrifying than a menacing nine-foot Goliath. Enemies that we all face. See, underlying the brokenness of this world is the enemy of sin, of our sin, of, of our rebellion, our failure to obey God as God. We are broken and we know the pain that sin causes in relationships with others. We know the fear and insecurity that sin causes. And that's part of the world that we live in. I mean, just to illustrate, who, when you got out of your car this morning, who locked you? Who locked your car? Did you lock your car as you came to church? Of course you did. Because we know that this is a sinful world where we can't trust people. We know that this world is broken and that brokenness comes from sin. We face the enemy of sin. And we face, as much as we, uh, as much as we try, may try to avoid it, we face the enemy of death. Death stands like Goliath and mocks us all. I mean, we don't like to talk about it. We try to, to sanitise it, to to not speak about it, although I think over these past two years, COVID has, has certainly brought the fear of death closer to the surface. But death is an enemy that mocks us all. And not just physical death, but the judgment of God on our sin that follows death. We face the enemy of death. And we face the enemy of the devil. Forget about the, the image of a, of a silly little man in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork tempting you with an ice cream or a chocolate or something. That, our spiritual enemy is real. And he wants to take you and I down. He's described in, in 1 Peter 5, 8 as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How does he do that? In, in our context, it's usually subtle. Placing some temptation before, before us wearing down our defences, getting in our ear and accusing us, you're weak, it's too hard, you can't win this battle. We face the enemy of the devil. So we need to see, we need to see the real enemies that threaten us. Friends, it's far more serious than even the pessimists amongst us often think. The tunnel is not just dark. There is a freight train coming but praise be to god he has won a victory over our enemies far greater than any optimist could imagine because we have a david we have the great son of david the chosen one the one who comes in the name of the lord we have king jesus who has faced and defeated our greatest enemy such that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is, is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if our trust is in Christ, we don't need to, to fear death because the sting of death has been pulled. We don't need to fear judgment on our sin because our sin has been dealt with. We don't need to fear the devil 
He has been defeated. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus has triumphed over him by the cross. Our great enemies are defeated. Victory is ours. So if our trust is in Christ, then, then like the Israelites in the Valley of Elah on that great day of victory, we can say, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which leads me to ask, because I don't know the heart of every one of you, either here or, or online, leads me to ask, do you know this victory? Do you know this king? If not, I want to say, see the victory that is in front of you. Acknowledge Jesus as the king that God has chosen to save his people. Don't just see Jesus as people often see him, as some insignificant figure from history. See him as God sees him, as God's chosen king. The one who has faced and has defeated our greatest enemy. Put your trust in Jesus Follow him, because without him, your greatest enemies of sin, death, and the devil still stand before you. But if you do know that victory, as I know is the case for, for many, if not most of you, if you have bowed your knee before King Jesus, then know that he has gone into battle for you. And praise God, praise God that he is for you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? As God's word says in Romans 8, 32, and I'll finish with these words, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We face a terrible enemy, but we have a far more powerful saviour. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory that you have won for us. For the victory that you have given us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, please help us to, to see the true enemies that we face, that our world faces. Help us to see and trust in the great victory that you give. Please help us to rest in the great salvation that you have won and help us to give ourselves to follow our King Jesus. And we ask in his name. Amen.